this week on Dig Me Out. your hosts, Jason Diaz and Tim Minichi. Jay, we're back again with another episode. Thanks to our Dig Me Out Union at Patreon. You can help us make the next episode happen by joining us at digmeoutunion.com. Jay, we're starting a new series with this episode. It's it's dmounion.com. What did I say? (laughs) You said digmeoutunion.com. I'm going to have to go buy that URL now, too. Buy that URL so I cannot make any more mistakes. DMOUnion.com. Okay. We're starting a new series, Jay. Thanks to a recent roundtable poll, which was the one for June. We're, we're like two days late because this is going on out on July 2nd. But this is our June roundtable. Uh, we we put it out. the day, you know First roundtable that went out poll was pick what what the topic's going to be or what the what the focus is going to be we have like you know, different focuses different uh series that we do and we threw up a wild card and johnny hooper said i got a wild card idea you should do record labels of the 90s and we said that was mm. a great idea so then we yeah. put it up for another vote and kill rock stars won so for this episode jay we're going to be talking it's not a traditional round table in the sense that we don't have three people on with us to go back and forth this is more in the in the round table vein of when we did the desert rock episode and uh, that turned into a interview slash round table with uh director jason i forgot how to pronounce his last name giardardis giardis i forgot anyway the desert age <laughs> doc that he did which is yeah. very good yeah it's a round table and we're, we're focused on the label um right three people yes so, a round table but, yeah, it's a I triangular mean, yeah. table triangular. yeah yeah there we go and uh we're finding the themes here that we'll uh continue to explore with the other labels that we do over the course of the years to come so yep keep supporting us and uh you know um we're looking for suggestions on what's the next label we're gonna go right talk about you know we've we've spoken about this before jay that we would not review sleater kinney's dig me out until the very last episode of the podcast whenever that might be now in episode 300 we reviewed the book about dig me out with Jovan Ababovich, who wrote it for the 33 and a third series so we technically did not review the album this is the label that Slater Kinney released dig me out on <laughs> so again we are skirting right. our original statement by recording an episode about the label not about the album itself so again, we get to talk about the record without talking about it, which I think is pretty slick. And we're going to be talking about Kill Rock Stars with the founder of Kill Rock Stars, that's Slim Moon. He was with the label from the inception up until 2006. That's when his wife, uh, Portia Saban, took over. And he joined us to talk about the 90s era of the label. So let's go to that. Slim, thank you for joining us to talk about 
kill rock stars. We greatly appreciate it. Yeah, so, my pleasure. So we've started a new, we've been doing this podcast for almost 10 years now and uh, covering the nineties. And the one series that we haven't done is talking about record labels of the nineties. We've talked to some people from record labels, but we, we never really turned it into a series like we have with some other concepts. So this is the inaugural revisitation of of labels that were key to the to the 90s and sort of defining that decade and the sound and the bands i guess what we'd like to start with is understanding um you know you just don't start a a label out of the blue how you got where your journey took you to, to getting to actually starting a label um did you grow up listening to independent music in the 80s and and find inspiration through that or was it on a local level just how did how did you get to the point where you decided i want to put out music on my own well i lived in seattle in my high school days um well start i guess starting in middle school i started listening to like the the cool the coolest commercial station in seattle like they played you know kind of mtv new wave and some british imports and then um in high school i discovered but I didn't really go to shows or know anything about it other than just that I was listening to, like, you know, modern music or uh, um, modern rock or new wave, as they called it, in, like, 82 or whatever. And um, But then I discovered college radio, particularly KUPS in Tacoma. And I can still remember that the first three songs I heard when I just, just stumbled onto that station was Jonathan Richmond... Um, Girlfriend, G I R L F R E N, and the Long Riders 10560, and the Butthole Surfers. Um, I don't even remember the name of the song, but the one about smoking Elvis Presley's toenails. <laughs> and then that was just like, oh my God, this, I can't, I never even imagined music like this exists. And that totally changed my world. And I discovered, then I quickly discovered that you could buy those records at a couple of independent stores. There was a store in Seattle called Bomb Shelter Video, and I used to just, so I became, like every penny I saved in allowance or or um, paper route, I started spending at Bomb Shelter, and then when Bomb Shelter closed, I started going to Fallout, which was co-owned by Bruce Pavitt, who had done sub-pop cassettes and later started sub-pop as a record label. And um, and there was a cu- couple different people there, but it was always Bruce who I would ask, like, "Hey, what's new? What what should I buy?" He was like my my trusted store clerk, you know. And um, then my sister started dating a punk rocker, and my mom was wor- was nervous about it, so she asked me to go out one night with her to be the just a chaperone. So I ended up at my first punk show, which was um, the Melvins with a couple opening bands, one called He Sluts and another one called Hell Smells. And it blew, it, again, my mind was blown. And then I was like, now I know what I want to live for. And I started going to every single show I could possibly go to. Dropped out of high school, lived on the street for a little while, moved back into my house, saved up enough money to go to college, went, then moved to Evergreen because by that time I discovered that all the cool bands were in Olympia. Although, you know, I, I, I liked a lot of Seattle bands too, but I discovered that there were all these cool bands in Olympia and Tacoma that had a totally different vibe than the grunge bands in Seattle. And um, then I got kicked out of college after six months 
and uh, nine months, and then got a job through a low-income job training program, and then um, became over that time. I'm sorry to be so long-winded, but over that time, I became. I found out that while my friends were obsessed with bands or obsessed with import singles or obsessed with playlists, like everybody had different obsessions, but my obsession was like was record labels and what what the different records that a label would what bands that each label signed and what they had in common and what they stood for and what their at what advertising decisions they made what magazines they advertised in i just became really hmm. obsessed with record labels particularly sst and discord and um i mean who are pretty different but i was obsessed with those two labels and um sst was so good in the in the late 80s and early 90s and um so I was sort of mentally ready for it, but I was convinced there was really no chance to get from zero to somewhere. So I didn't really believe I could start a record label other than maybe a hobby thing. Um, and then, but I, meanwhile, I, although I was in a bunch of bands, my real love early on for my own performing was spoken word as this performance art. And I did a lot of opening for, for punk bands and open mics and poetry readings and whatnot and so i started the, the record label actually to just put out to really be a hobby label to just put out spoken words uh seven inches because um, the 90s well the 90s was a time of everybody having starting of a million indie labels putting out seven inches and most indie bands starting with the seven inch before they put out their album and there were a lot of seven inch collectors right so, um i thought oh there's all these people trying to put out the perfect pop song or the perfect punk song on a seven inch why don't i try to put out the perfect three minute poem on a seven inch that was my initial idea you know did you have uh, any mentors or people that you kind of learned from on the just the logistics of how do you make a record and get it out there and create the artwork and all that yeah um calvin johnson was pretty much the only person he just i called him and, and he told me over the phone like he gave me the name of a couple a couple mastering places and a couple record printers and a couple print shops and he gave me bags unlimited which is you know just been a staple for for a million years for people for seven inch bags and you know comic book bags and everything else and um and that was pretty much it it was just calvin gave me a bunch of numbers and then um you know the first time i had to to do layout i hired a designer who was used to doing like pamphlets but she she just got the specs from the from the printer and laid it out and you know first couple times we made some mistakes but they weren't they weren't fatal and um then we we learned how to do it um and then when i moved into doing rock records calvin helped me a lot because the first record i did was a, the kill rock stars compilation and he he actually lined up in a matter of like 48 hours, he lined up half the bands that went on that comp, and I lined up the other half of the bands. Um, so it could have, if Calvin had wanted to be greedy, that could have been like a K slash Kill Rock Stars co-release because he really did line up half the music that ended up on that record. So that was my, my I'd say Calvin was my only mentor directly, and the, but then there were others who were inspirations. So in that first year, you're getting off the ground, you know, putting out stuff that you want to put out, are you finding are you just doing things that your friends are doing or are you actually like hanging out you said you're going to the bars to see or, or venues to see bands all the time are you actually i don't want to say scouting but are you actually like going to see a band that you've maybe not 
being been friends with and just being impressed with what they sound like go to them and say, I want to put out your record or is it just purely like friends at that point? Well, when I moved to, I moved to Olympia in 86. So I was 18. Then I started the label at 23. So the five intervening years that I was in Olympia, I was friends or knew every, you know, every Tacoma or Aberdeen or Olympia band. And there started to be quite a few. It was like really a burgeoning scene with a really different vibe than the Seattle scene, which was also like really starting to happen you know it, it wasn't it wasn't mainstream major label grunge yet but it was sub pop was really putting their their mark and so one of the bands i knew was nirvana and i watched them struggle where they were you know that I, to my opinion they were a great band from the minute they started they were and they were certainly their first recording was certainly better than a lot of people's albums that were coming out those days and yet you know, another year or two went by where they wrote letters, you know, sent demos to, to labels and wrote letters to labels and toured and toured and toured. And then when they finally got Sub Pop to, when other musicians got on Sub Pop's, Sub Pop's case and convinced Sub Pop, like, you really need to sign these kids from Aberdeen, the label still didn't really believe in them and forced them to have a cover song on be the A side of their single. And so, I I came to believe that my talented friends in Olympia would have to have similar multi-year struggles before they could even get a debut record made by the handful of Northwest labels that would pay attention. Mm-hmm. And so I sort of decided to step up. So my mo- initial motive was to step up to put out my friends' records so that a band like Unwound wouldn't have to, you know, try beg uh, unwound for attention for, i mean beg sub pop for, for attention for several years before finally getting allowed to put out a test seven inch i thought they deserved a record quicker than that so i was so i offered to do it but um but the impetus of just being local only lasted like that was the first idea but then it it, it only lasted a little while it, because huggy bear wrote from england once we had bikini kill and bratmobile out uh, Huggy Bear wrote from England and wanted us to be their U.S. label, and I wasn't going to say no to that. And so then we just started still doing a lot of my friends' records, but also starting to do records like a sort of a, quote, real record label and doing A&R from around the world and writing to bands and signing bands and whatnot. Gotcha. But, you know, all, most of our, our 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 stuff that was the most successful early on was through the network of Olympia bands and Olympia friendships and Olympia relationships. You know, it was Bikini Kill and Unwound and Heavens to Betsy and uh, Excuse 17 and Hello, like, and Witchy Poo were all, were all, that was our original roster and those were all Olympia bands. So Jay and I, one of the things we like to do is, is try to place everything in context of what was happening in the decade when we're talking about stuff that, when we're trying to revisit albums and trying to revisit particular releases that are are what we kind of, you know think of as key releases and and I, I this is such an interesting um case because you know 91 92 I'm looking at the releases and you mentioned you mentioned Bikini Kill and Brian Beale and these other bands that was when that when the term Riot Girl started to come into like the um I don't want to say, I, not everybody knew about it in terms, unless you were reading like zines and stuff like that. Being 
at the sort of mainstream level, it started to, I think, bubble up around 92 when the election was happening and there was like rock for choice on MTV and you were hearing like musicians getting involved in that period. And I'm curious as to when the, that sort of term and that scene, if if that's even the right term for it, started to get mainstream recognition, if that started to affect the label in any way, negatively or positively, whether attention or sales or anything along those lines. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the women who started Riot Girl in DC and then in, and then in Olympia were a group of women, some of whom were members of Bratmobile and Bikini Kill. So, you know, you can't state, you can't say Bratmobile and Bikini Kill started Riot Girl. But what you can say is right. member, members of Bratmobile and Bikini Kill were part of the initial collective who started Riot Girl. And, um, and so they were closely affiliated and connected to that in, in the public's mind as it became better known. Um, so, so like the especially Bikini Kill because they were the first band of that ilk that we put out. Their their success as a great punk band and as, as an inspiration to women and men went hand in hand with the Bikini Kill becoming better. I mean, with with Riot Girl becoming better known in the mainstream. So. You could pause, you could it's a chicken and the egg thing though like because they were great that made Riot Girl get more attention and because Riot Girl got more attention they got more fans but they also got more fans because they were great so it was it was tight it was very tied together especially in the case of that band gotcha. and that of course was was good for Kill Rock Stars and you know we had our first compilation had a Nirvana song on it and then Nirvana went on to to like Kurt Cobain said some pro some nice things about riot girl himself and and there were some uh you know there were some mainstream publications wrote about riot girl but then there were also mainstream publications writing about doing you know longer pieces about nirvana and talking about their background and then talking about members of nirvana's relationships with members of um Riot Girl bands, so even some Nirvana fans were hearing of Riot Girl or hearing of Bikini Kill through those mainstream affiliations as well. And all of that was good for Kill Rock Stars. Like we were, it was a it was a nice moment for us to be putting out. I mean, it was a nice moment for for two reasons. It was a nice moment to be putting out Bratmobile and Bikini Kill because we felt like we weren't just putting out great music, but we were affecting social change or at least awareness. Um, and we were selling enough to put that money back into the label and put out more great music. And so it was just a really nice time for us that, that early nineties. So when, what was the moment where, um, this went from being kind of a side gig hobby to this is your full-time focus. Um, what point did that happen? Right. I had a job working for the state of Washington at the human rights commission from, uh, 87 to 93. And so I started the label in 91, and then when I got laid off from the state job in 93, and I got, I was, at when I first heard that I was going to get laid off, I was like, oh, that's great, I'll, I'll collect, I'll collect unemployment and scam the system and do the label for a few months while collecting unemployment. And then at, the closer it got to me getting laid off, I just got nervous, 
about getting busted. And so I never actually filed for unemployment. I was like, I'm going to give this a go and see if I can live off the record label. And then I never had a job again after that. So I guess that's when it became serious was July 1st of 93. So if you wouldn't have gotten laid off, what do you think would have happened? Did did it take that to push you forward? Well, there's in the time, in the six years that I was at that state office, there had been three different directors. Like every time you got a new governor, you got a new director. And um, the first, the first time there was a new director, they almost laid me off, but I'm, I, I kind of made a big point of showing them how important the data that I was tracking was to them and how I could make charts and graphs that, could, that they could take to the legislature to show how they were getting the job done and also how they needed more appropriations. And then in 93, when they, when the same, we got a new director and the same sort of thing happened. There's always, they'd always like lay off a bunch of people whenever there's a new director. And in 93, when the new director came in, I decided I kind of want to get laid off. So I just didn't bother to try to convince that director that I was really important to the, you know, like that I was Mm -hmm. in. So I kind of got laid off on purpose. But oh, okay. <laughs> I think if it hadn't happened, I probably would have quit six months later anyways. Okay. So to, starting from that point, like describe for us the kind of the growth curve for the label from that point until um, you step back. You know, what does that look like? And is it, the, I guess, is there any point in that where, you know, maybe the growth got to the point where it was a little bit hard to manage? Or was it the opposite ever where, you know, potentially it became uh, like you weren't going to be able to keep going forward with it? Right. Um, Yeah, there was some, you know, the early on, the first two years, it was hard to manage because there was a lot of demand for the Kill Us compilation and for the Bikini Kill EP. And, you know, when we put out the first cup, the first, the Kill Us comp, our we really didn't have any distribution at all. And the distributor we did have sold a lot and then never paid us. And then when, after me hounding them for a year, they gave me a payment plan that, where it would have taken them like 10 years to pay me back for what they'd sold in six months. And uh, so I had to switch distributors and I was able to push them and finally get them to pay me within a year. But so I, no cash was coming in, even though we'd sold a bunch of records and had spent a lot printing all those records. So that was kind of a bottleneck. And then we had a very short deal with Cargo, who was a distributor, and um, that helped fund at least just keeping things in the pipeline. And then we were lucky to get more damn distribution. But there was constantly uh, a, a money crunch the first couple of years to keep things in print and then and distributors taking taking their sweet time to pay us. Um, mm. Not whoever was our like primary distributor weren't so bad, but well, after the first one, but other distributors would take their sweet time paying the primary distributor um, unless we had stuff in the pipeline, but it was hard to have stuff in the pipeline until we got paid. So that was kind of a catch-22. And um, so I, I ended up, like I started the label and did the first couple records just with extra money from my job, but I ended up having to max out a couple credit cards just to keep stuff in print while we were waiting to get, um, while we were waiting to get paid. Wow. I'm really, I was always really conservative. Um, 
So I didn't, I wasn't willing to put money on a credit card until I already, until we already had sold the, enough records that I knew I could pay off the credit card, you know? Um, I wasn't gonna do it just, I saw, I saw too many other people just be like, I'm so convinced that my friends are awesome that I'm gonna take my trust fund and spend all this money. And that didn't usually work out, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so but I, um, yeah, I was always like very careful with money and not really willing to spend more money until the sa enough sales had been made that I knew the money was coming in at some point, you know? So what does, um, at that point, maybe, maybe even take the sort of the peak of the label in the nineties, what, what, what a record deal look like? Um, exactly like what are well, the logistics of that for 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 kill rock stars right um the first several years were handshake 50 50 deals mm -hmm. um and then after i've been doing it like seven years i i i figured out that the problem with handshakes is that people don't remember what they agreed on mm. like everybody can be perfectly well-meaning like even with nobody nobody stabbing anybody in the back nobody being disloyal nobody breaking faith seven years later you can just think you agreed on something different than the other person thinks you agreed on unless you, have, you write something down you know um but yeah it was just handshakes for for the first seven or ten years or so i mean i think we probably did our first contract like seven years in but we weren't all contracts all the time until by maybe ten years in um and the 50 50 deal we, I had heard that Touch and Go and Discord did 50-50 deals, so I just modeled it after that. But I, I didn't call those guys up. I didn't call Corey up or, or Ian up to say, what's your 50-50 deal look like? How do, you do, how do you handle expenses? How do you handle sync rights and stuff? We just sort of made up how we – we just made up for ourselves how we were going to handle that stuff, Every, you know, the, the nitty-gritty. Gotcha. So it's, it's really one record at a time, handshake yeah. deal. It okay. was record at a time handshake deals, and then eventually, somewhere down the road, there was somebody came to me and wanted more money than I felt comfortable, and I finally said, "Okay, I, I'll give you that much money on your first record if you'll make it a two record deal." So, we've done a few. I in my time, I did a few two and three record deals, but it was almost all one record deals the whole time, the whole fifteen years I was there. Gotcha. I was running it. I mean, and and what does the staff look like? Like, how many folks do you have, and what are the roles that right. are essential to be able to run the, the label? Right. Well, you know, when I started in '91, it was just me. Then by like '92, I had somebody doing mail order and a few odd jobs because I was at work all day, and I was like running home during lunch to try to make phone calls to my distributor and stuff, and because um, I lived like four blocks from work. And um, then by '93, when I got laid. It off. I had a couple people working for me. So then by nine, by 2000, it just kept like every couple of years or every year or so we kept adding somebody. So we peaked in about 2000 with 16 people. And um, then it started to go down from, down a bit from there. Um, but I think when I left in 06, we had 12 or 13 people. Um, but when I left, Porsche immediately downsized and let go of a third, I think, of those 12 people. Um, so, so it, it, you know, it, and now it's down to like five, you know, so it started 
one person was peaked at 16 and is back down to five now. And uh, how are you finding artists and 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 really going out and deciding what records you're going to put out? I mean, because the catalog is growing at this point when you get to the mid and late 90s. Uh, it's obviously beyond Olympia, right? Yeah. Is that your role or do you have some other folks helping you do A&R? Uh, no, it was all me. You know, bands would like the, the existing bands on the label were the greatest resource. Like they'd come back from tour and say, I saw this great band in Austin or, you know, saw this great band in England. Um, I signed a few bands from from demos, although I signed, more, I signed a lot more bands from demos to 5RC and not as not so many bands from demos to kill rock stars and um but a lot of what were relationships through our through the olympia olympia had really people in olympia the olympia music scene they had a lot of strong relationships with people in washington dc and los and l not la washington dc san francisco and portland especially and so i found that i ended up doing a lot of bands from from San Francisco and from Portland. But then the rest of the bands are just sort of randomly dispersed around the country, but just based on relationships or based on me seeing them, you know, when once we were a pretty established label, I could go to South by Southwest and see a band play a show in a, in a, uh, you know, side street venue and just walk up to them and say, hey, have you guys talked to any labels? So by the end of the 90s, I could do that. but mid 90s it was still mostly relationships friends of friends or friends of the bands or bands uh, bands that uh, our existing bands saw on the road and came home and told me about so what were you looking for when you um went and saw a band i mean what was the what you need to hear and see for you to feel comfortable that you, that you could help them or they might be a good fit for kill rock stars right well one of the things that i'm really proud of in the 15 years i guess i would summarize i i wanted it's this is super subjective but what i always said from the beginning to the end of my time there was that i wanted me music that was meaningful and so um that could mean a few different things um it could be really emotionally impactful i can't believe i said impact i don't say impact i hate that word but it could be really emotionally affecting or if it was a guitar band, especially if it was like an all-guy guitar band, it was like post-punk guitars, then I had very high standards. Like, they needed to be pushing the envelope, not just sound nice. If it was something that was like in a genre that was already well-trodden, then I wanted, I wanted to believe they were really pushing the envelope of that genre, or at least, or they were the tip-top, very best band in that genre I'd ever heard. Um, but if it was if there was political or social content that made it meaningful, then my sort of musical standards would be more like, is it affecting? Is it, does it have an impact? Um, is it changing? Is it safe? Is it going to save a teenager's life? Who's like, Hey, I recognize myself in that music. Um, so one of the things I'm really proud of is that I think if you look at the whole catalog in the 15 years that I was there, and you don't just look at the front person, the singer, but you actually look at the personnel, the drummer, the guitar player, the, the, the bass player, the piano player, um, whatever, the, that I think about 
50% of the musicians on the whole label the whole time I was doing the NR were, were female. And I, I'm, I'm, I really can't think of any other label that was had such a high percentage of the musicians being female uh, in the time that I was working um, as we had. But it was never like stated, like we're a label for, for, for the ladies. But because what I, I found like, four dudes playing guitars and singing about the girlfriend that broke their heart, I found that really dull. Like, let other labels put that out. I didn't do many bands like that, you know? Because I just didn't think it was that meaningful. I was so, it was really well-trodden, sort of boring uh, terrain. One of our uh, listeners on the live feed asked a question about the bands that were more established that you put out releases specifically um blood on the saddle and the john doe thing and i i when i was looking through the discography i was those stuck out stood out to me or especially the john doe because he's obviously known for x and i i think i probably knew him more in the 90s from acting uh you know that rather than music so uh, you know a lot i mentioned a lot of these bands that you're putting out our, our young bands are new are playing festivals or what have you touring with bands that are on the label already how do you get hooked up with established artists like that well um when i was a uh, when i was in high school or dropped out of high school when i was a teenager and i was i was discovering music i i really gravitated I gravitated to a few different scenes i, I mentioned discard before and sst but I also gravitated to to the LA scene. Um, X were sort of like the pinnacle. Another great band from that time and place was the Gun Club. Um, so X and Gun Club were probably the pinnacle of what I thought that why I thought the LA scene was the coolest punk scene in the mid '80s. Um, and uh, so. When I had a chance to work, like I put out a next scene, spoken word record, put out a John Doe EP, um, put out Blood on the Saddle, which was another band that I really liked from LA. It was more like those were sort of like me being a fan. You know, like, oh my God, I get a chance to work with the people I worshipped when I was sixteen. You know, I also did a Frank record, P H R A N C, the Jewish lesbian folk singer. She was another cool person from the LA scene that. Um, that I really liked. So that those few records were more about me just geeking out and being excited that I could work with people I had worshipped when I was a teenager. Gotcha. You mentioned about the the label that you started, Five RC. What was what's the thought process in in starting like a a secondary label? Was it just because you wanted for certain sounds? Yeah, I sort of had this theory. We haven't talked much about Mary Lou Lord and Daniel Howell and then later on Elliot Smith. But I had this theory that Kill Rock Stars as a label um, had sort of congealed or I don't know, had sort of settled in by like 95 to having several things that we several primary things that we stood for. One was or that we that we did as our sort of like raison d'etre or, or something. We did sort of Riot girl bands and and similar even some bands that didn't want to be called riot girl bands but there was there was like similar social political motives um we did 
envelope pushing post punk garage on the heavier side, like Godhead Silo and Unwound. We did some just classic garage bands and we did spoken word and then we did singer songwriters and that's already a lot of different things right so but I, my my taste was voracious and and there were weirder sounds that i wanted to put out and i put out uh sort of an all uh, experimental alternative heavy band called the thrones and the sales were really really poor and i just i felt like okay we went one bridge too far the established fans We've just got established fans for our singer-songwriters. We've got established fans for our heavy guitar stuff. We've got established fans for our folk, but we and we don't have as many established fans for the for the little bit of sort of classic garage rock. But we we when we try to put out experimental music, it's just it, it's just it doesn't appeal to any of the established groups of fans that we have. And so I decided that it that it was going to be easier. That we were starting to confuse the audience, and it was going to be easier to start a new um, label with an identity of the music being more experimental, and have it just build its own fan base separate from Kill Rock Stars, and then, and so then we, I, I you know, I, I signed Deerhoof, Shushu, and Hella all together at the same time, approximately the same time, and uh, oh, and. Um, semi-automatic um and uh just sort of started launched the more experimental label with those bands and that's the same year so that i mean we have to mention this because we named the podcast after it that's the same yeah. year that uh, dig me out comes out by sleater kenny right. um how did you discover them i know they were already together but was that someone that you had you know, talk to before they put out their first record or what was the well, process in there? The first compilation I put out, the Kill Rock Stars compilation, the, the whole, the conceit of the compilation was to put it out during this festival in Olympia called the International Pop Underground Festival that happened in 1991 that was sponsored by K Records. And I got it out just in time to sell copies at that festival. And after the main programming of that festival happened, at the last minute, they put together a, a, a night, sort of a, a, a slate of bands the night before the festival started. Um, they sort of, it was more last minute. It wasn't on, on the main programming. And it was all women-led bands, mostly all girl band, all women bands. And one of those bands was a band called Heavens to Betsy, where, which were very young high schoolers from uh, Corvallis had driven up and they just played like three songs I think and but they were just super uh Corin's voice was just super affecting it just like blew my mind and they switched instruments on every song and it was just pretty cool so when I when I put out the CD version of that comp I could add four songs cuz CDs are longer than albums so I asked four different bands to be on the comp on the CD version of the compilation including asking Heaven Spetsy who I'd never heard of when I put out the original album so they were, so I added them to the to the CD version of the first compilation and then I asked them to be on the label so then I put out a Heaven Spetsy record and then there was another cool sort of Riot Girl affiliated band in Olympia that were 
more like college kids. But they were called Heavens to Betsy. So uh, uh, one or two years after I put out the the Heavens to Betsy record, I put out the Excuse 17 record. And then Carrie from Excuse 17 and Corin from Heavens to Betsy started sort of a side project band called Slater Kinney. And um, if I remember right, they basically started that because they because they because one of those bands had been invited to go to Australia. I hope I have this story right. Excuse, probably it was Heavens to Betsy got invited to go to Australia, but but the Tracy and in this in Heavens to Betsy couldn't go, so they started. So she started the side project band, Slater Kinney. I may have this story wrong, but it's something like this. They started a side side project band to go to Australia. They asked me if I wanted to put out the record, and I said, "Well, my thought process was, well, having some Betsy's already on my label, and Excuse Seventeen is already on my label, so I want to focus on those bands. I don't, and I, and if I put out their side project band, then every band on my label is going to start asking me to put out their side project bands. So <laughs> right. I." To put out Slater Kitty because I perceived them as a side project band, but uh. um, so they put out an EP and an album, if I remember right, on Chainsaw Records, and then they they wanted to move from Chainsaw, and in by that time, Excuse Seventeen and Heaven Sabetsi had broken up, so they came to me and said, again, they actually came to me and said, what label do you think we should sign to now that we're going to leave Chainsaw, and I gave them some suggestions. And they pursued those suggestions, but I guess it didn't work out. And then because I had, we had existing relationship and I had been straight with them and told them who I thought they should, who would, like I, I'd given them advice that was like the, what I thought was the best advice for them rather than just saying, oh, you should do it with me because you're selling lots of records and therefore I want to be greedy. <laughs> they decided that the trust in the relationship was, was, was the most important thing. And so they, they came back and said, Slim, really, we would be interested in putting out the record with you. And I said, okay, that sounds great. You guys are awesome. I've always liked you. And then we put up Dig Me Out. So that's how that happened. So was there ever anyone, a band or a record you had an opportunity to put out that you passed on and now are, you kind of regret or wish you would have put it out? Yeah. It sounded like that was a close call. Sometimes when people approach you, you don't know if, you, if, if it would have definitely seriously worked out. So I can't say for sure that I had an... I was approached by um, Ju- Julianne Hatfield's people at a point when du- she was pretty recently off of being having hit records like I Hate My Sister and stuff. And and I declined just because of my sort of anti-rockstar, anti-mainstream bias. And But over the last 20 years, I think she's been one of the great indie songwriters out there. And she's put out great solo work. And I, I wish that I had said yes. And I wish I had had a working relationship with her. And so I, I can say that. But there's some there's some biggish stuff that I passed on that I don't regret. Um, early on my label, like before Loser came out, I was offered a Beck to do something with Beck, and I passed on that. And I don't feel bad about that. And I was offered to do something with the presidents of the United States of America, and I don't feel bad about that. So, are you putting out uh, pure, all all CDs at this point? Is there any vinyl mixed in? How are you making that call? Essentially. Cassette, CD, vinyl. What, what what are you putting out on what? Oh, I I I'd be willing before we answer that question. I'd be willing to tell a little more, a couple more examples about bands I w- I missed. Oh yes. Oh yeah. Yes. Yes. Please. Um, 
could I, I was offered the Yeah Yeah Yeahs EP, and I thought that band was really great. But we were at a point with the label that I just I didn't want to put out an EP. I really felt the reason they were only offering me an EP and not an album was that they wanted to have their debut album be on a major, and I didn't want to be a stepping stone to a major, so I declined. Mm. And they they put that out EP out on Touch and Go, and then put out their album on the major. And I know it really hurt Touch and Go's feelings when they didn't put the album out on Touch and Go. So I totally called that one right. Like I think that band is great. I think they did good work on major label, but. I didn't want to be just an EP stepping stone to a major label, and so I feel fine about the decision to pass on that record. There was the White Stripes. Jack White called me at one point when he, when he was, my perception was he was trying to decide whether to stay on Sympathy for the record industry, and he asked me a lot of questions, and I told him that I really wanted to put out his record, but I didn't try very hard. Like I was being respectful of where he seemed to be coming from. And then he did put, he did do another record with Sympathy, and I've always wished I had just slaps. I wish I had always wished I had really just laid it on thick and told him how how that we're just desperate to put him out to work with him rather than hey yeah if you decide to leave Sympathy we'd love to do it you know which I was I, I played that too cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't say for sure that that means he would have switched, but I wish I'd tried harder you know because I could I really thought highly of them at that point and. Would have loved to have been involved with anything Jack White at any point because I think he's one of the greats, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I, that sort of answers that question, I, but I, off the top of my head. And then on the the formats, uh, vinyl, CD, cassette, wh- what was your, uh, what were you putting out uh, mostly during the '90s, and what were your, what was your thought process on on that? In the early '90s, I mean, you know, our very first few records were just vinyl or vinyl and cassette because CD. Were, wasn't was still like seemed like some of mainstream artists were doing it in like 92 and some catalog was getting reissued on cd in 92 but by like 93 everything was all cd all the time and so there was a couple years there where we where we put out all our releases or most of our releases there was a cassette and vinyl and cd like the early unwound releases are like that and bikini kill then we dropped cassettes and then I wanted vinyl of everything for for a, a while, but then it, there were some some bands by the mid '90s that I just wanted to work with because I loved them, but I knew they had no commercial potential. Like they weren't going to sell more than 500 copies or something. So in a few cases, I had to go to bands and say, "Look, we can only do CD. I can't do vinyl on your record because you're a weird jazz band and no, you know, <laughs> it's a great record, but there's not much commercial potential for it." And so we started doing some CD only, and then there might have been a case or two where we did, like Bikini Kill's first EP was was vinyl only forever. The Huggy Bear Bikini Kill split record was vinyl only forever. So, but I was I'm trying to think if there were any in, by the late '90s anybody who just specifically asked to be a, just a vinyl release and not on CD. I think Thrones. There were some EPs that were vinyl and not CD, um, but mostly. In the second half of the '90s, it was either on vinyl and CD or just CD. So, what is how does that work now, with regards to if a if a band comes back to you now and says, "Hey, we want to re-release something, 
do they i mean i knew i know you mentioned that you were doing handshake deals and it's 50 50 which is obviously way different than when a band is dealing with a major and the major owns their masters and that kind of stuff were you giving them you know control over that in terms of like if they wanted to re if you you know if they want to do something like that or how does how does that work when you're doing a a very simple deal yeah well the problem with the handshake deals is basically that later on everybody remembers the what they agreed on the way they however they remember it so i thought we were doing deals in perpetuity when we did those handshakes but um and i believe i said that every time when i when the band shook their shook hands with me but some of the bands have agreed have decided later that it wasn't a deal it wasn't in perpetuity and so we've generally not fought them if a band has said we want to take this take this catalog to another label or reissue it ourselves or whatever we've generally just let it go so there's some label some stuff we put out in the 90s that is now reissued on other labels because the band decided to go get in advance from sub pop or whatever interesting so you're not holding on to any masters then for any of those deals like they still have all their stuff and you're not warehousing material no, we, we, in a lot of cases, our warehousing material, if people haven't asked for it back. Um, okay. Because until they ask for it back, we keep it in print. And, you know, in the last decade of the label, there's, you know, we, we realized that it's, your job isn't just keeping it in print for, how, wait, how do I say this? It's like sometimes, I used, okay, I used to think that when you reissue an album, that's 20 years old, that it was just mostly a money grab. Like, let's milk a little more money out of this artist. And I was very critical of labels for doing that, you know, especially if they, like, added some liner notes or threw on some bonus tracks. I used to I used to think that was just a money grab. But now I realize that, like, this, this process of sort of reintroducing an artist like Elliot Smith every few years is an important part of the process of introducing his music to new generations. Mm. When you have a, a generational artist like that who's going to find new young fans um, year after year and decade after decade, you have to you have to do stuff in the marketplace. You can't just passively right. have a blog available. And um, so you know, so now that we're a twenty-eight-year-old label, it's not just about signing new bands. It's also about more conscientious management of the catalog. Um, right so as there's more music released and access to that music becomes easier and easier you really have to take on a responsibility to continue to remind people which i guess the show does right (laughs) um you know we're digging stuff out that you know people are hearing for the first time and you know what does it matter when it was released you know uh anymore record store day is a big thing so um, sometimes even the like the lesser known bands or releases out of our catalog, we might do a reissue that's just for Record Store Day. Or and so, um, so we like to have the tapes and the art in our possession in order to do different kinds of reissues and whatnot. So we keep the tapes unless people ask for them back, you know. And there's a little bit of a storage cost involved, and we're fine with that. You know, yeah. so one of the stories that we have, you know, kind of stumbled on through the eight years of doing this podcast is just the the volume of material that was released in the 90s. It was sort of a, you know, the last big boom of for rock music in terms of, you know, financial investments, particularly for major labels. Part of that um, 
what ended up happening is, you know, they they went and sought out a lot of independent bands and independent labels to either buy out or partner with. Was that ever an option? Did you ever have any conversations or any partnerships with any major labels, um, you know, sort of through the mid-90s and the second half of the decade? Um, we were approached in a couple cases. We were approached by, like, the indie mammoth that later, I think, was bought or or had a deal with Hollywood Records. And we were approached by Atlantic when Danny Goldberg ran it. And then I had some conversations just sort of conversations with a couple other labels, but but I really wasn't interested in being in selling or being like an upstream source. I didn't even want to do a direct deal with one of the indie distributors that was half owned by a major or entirely owned by a major. So I just really, especially in the '90s, I just was still in a place where that was not. It wasn't where my head was at and I also the kinds of artists most of the artists on the label were really like anti-major anti-sellout really concerned about like we said no to a lot of sync opportunities for advertisements back in those days and some films because it was just too mainstream for what we were about at that time so it just was not you know a few label a few bands as a result of the bands who were who were more commercially in interested more commercially ambitious just left our label because we weren't doing that and i wasn't going to like make a deal to upstream them to a, a bigger label but mostly i was working with bands who were were making a conscious choice that they weren't going to sign to a major label even if they could and that was kind of our niche or what we were doing in the 90s you know mm-hmm. yeah so you were at an interesting when you get to the end of the decade you're at an interesting crossroads because it's the it's the birth in like 99 of napster and file sharing and this whole new digital era that we've talked to some folks that were either on the label side or or bands that have existed from into the 90s uh into the 2000s what was your I guess initial reaction. I know some people had very negative, obviously like the Metallica end of things where they went out and started suing people. Did you see that as a resource or did you see that as a complication? What was your thought process when the digital aspect of, of music um, being distributed came about in, in 99 and then into the 2000? I I could say a lot about that, but um, I don't know how much you want, but, I was. It was frustrating that when the iTunes Store started, um, Apple had, uh, went out. I mean, this is replayed over and over and over again with as new things have happened with streaming services and everything else. But but back then it was kind of the first time this happened that Apple went out and made deals with all the majors before they even like we started hearing noises and the indie labels and indie distributors were asking Apple, like, are you doing some kind of download store? And they like denied it, denied it and denied it and denied it until the day they invited us to come so they could do their presentation. And their presentation was, we've already signed on all the majors. Now we're finally going to admit this exists. And, um, so this, when the store went live, it was all major label music. Cause we were all still in the pipeline. Cause we'd only been asked if we were even interested a week before that, you know, that was a frustrating, it was, I also thought it was really frustrating that Apple, the labels were 
the labels and the publishers were very clear to Apple that they wished Apple would put like what label it's on and who the songwriters were and who the um, the musicians on on the each recording were. They put that in the metadata so that when somebody looked at that file, they could see all that information. And Apple just said, no, we don't think the public cares about any of that. We don't think they care about your record labels or what label it's on. We wanted to just say Apple um, when they're downloading it. And um, so that was frustrating. So um, I, I didn't have a chip on my shoulder about Napster and file what did they call them? You know, file exchange. Um, yeah. Back back in that day, you know, and it was it was significant. I mean, it was kind of significant. It was also, you know, this there was a crazy phenomenon at that time, like late '90s, where bands bands were always coming home from tour and telling me, like, night after night, we'd be st- sitting at our merch table, and kids would walk up and say, "You guys were great, but I'm not going to buy your CD because I burned it from my friend, or I'm going to just burn a copy from my friend." And so, actually, the whole burning a copy from my friend was annoying bands more than the download it for free off of Napster, hmm. you know. Right. Uh, that was, like, there's no there's no way to put a number on like on that, on how many yeah. people, how much record sales in, like, 99 we lost because the kids, when they, when when kids heard about it from their friends, which is the most natural way to hear about new music, they just burned it from their friends instead of... Um, buying it you know so that was that probably had more to do with that initial drop-off than just the the strict digital download thing i think um so i the chip i had on my shoulder was about the application of fair use like i i think that the, the the government and the courts and the and the 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 system let us down by by interpreting that a copy made over the internet follows the same rules as a copy made prior to the to the internet age in terms of fair use. Uh, so I wasn't mad at the services that were popping up to make take advantage of that, but I was mad that the that the, the powers that be that be that are supposed to protect copyright did not protect copyright. And I thought it was really naive to apply fair use in the same way in the internet era as it had been applied in, in the past. Um, that's, that's the feeling I had at the time and up until I left Kill Stars. And I have sort of no opinion since then as, as because I haven't been involved as, as downloads have become less a thing and streaming has changed the whole landscape again. Right. But I, I never, I, you know, I did, I wasn't bitter at Friendster. I mean, bitter at Napster, bitter at downloading. But I, 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 although sometimes, you know, you talk about how much when once they started getting, once those people started getting investment capital, it was the beginning of a process from from then till now, where in many different ways you can see investment capital and big money make a lot of money off of the copyrighted material off of other people's copyrighted material. Like whether it's YouTube paying low low royalties or Spotify or XM, it's like the fights over royalty rates and the and the the giving large advances to the majors that they didn't give to indies 
there's just there's been a long parade of really big money investors making lots of money where their primary business is trying to pay very low rate royalty rates to the people who have invest either created the the material the material or invested in it um and so that's like in one form or another that's been going on from the beginnings of digital music probably since the beginnings of <laughs> popular music since yeah, yeah. recorded music yeah. recorded music yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, time you get type of distribution like i mean i read a history of of the the petroleum industry and realized like it's the same in that industry and parts of lots of industries where over and over again distributors who create these partial or full monopolies make a lot more money than the people who actually pull it out of the ground or write and record the music or whatever else other thing is being distributed um people who control the bottleneck that gets it from where it's made to the people who to the consumers make more money from it than the than the actual producers you know um, right and it's it's that same phenomenon you know well and, and, and in the same respect the major versus indie thing happens in almost every industry as well you think about like the auto industry there used to be like 30 auto manufacturers in like the 19 uh, 30s 40s and now there's what three, four U.S. auto manufacturers and a couple worldwide. Like that industry also dealt with, you know, consolidation and people being driven out of business by, you know, Detroit, essentially. And yeah. um, I've, gotten, I've gotten really interested in comic books in the last decade, and like you know, come to realize how that Marvel and DC are not the products of just purchasing you know so many different little little comic you know other comic companies and magazine companies over the over the last 80 years you know um same thing you know it's because it's so funny to have all the beloved characters in dc and you 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 check out their their backgrounds and you discover like this one started on this comic on this you know you know this one started in this comic and this one started in an entirely different comic from a different city published by an entirely different comic and as dc bought up all these different comic book companies then they took all the characters from those different comic book companies and put them all in the same universe um which is really interesting to me one of the questions we ask in a lot of our roundtables uh so we do a series around for example um you know, well-known artists, and we kind of analyze their material in the 90s. And at the end of that episode, we ask if did that artist survive the 90s? So, for example, you two. So, if we were to do this going forward with labels, mm-hmm. did Kill Rockstar survive the 90s? I mean, I realize the label's still in business, but how would you characterize, you know, the mission and the state of the label and really the future? Yeah, I think that... Uh, most of our values are intact. Most of our reason for existing from the beginning is intact. I think you could say there's been a shift from being a community-based level to sort of being a family business. Um, like the label moved from Olympia. The Olympia community isn't what it once was. The, uh, everybody who lived in Olympia in the first decade when we were really the tight-knit group, there's a diaspora where we're all over the country now and some all over the world. So there's, I would say we di- we shifted from a community-based business to a family-based business, but most of 
our values and their original impetus for why we existed uh, is totally survived the 90s. Well, we've hit the we've gone over the hour mark. We're at about whatever. We're over an hour. Uh, that's where we like to hit our sweet spot is about an hour for these episodes. So right. this would be a good time for us to to wrap up and say thanks to Slim for joining us, spending some time on your Sunday evening talking about this. Greatly appreciate it. I have one more question. Oh, you do? Okay. okay. Yeah. So, um, you know, the show is based on uh, listener suggestions um, and patrons picking records that we should go back and revisit. So within the, the KRS catalog, uh, what's the record you would – you think is lost or forgotten that if you had to pick one and have us review, um, what would it be? Just one. Just one. <laughs> <laughs> um, God, that's hard. No pressure. <laughs> hey, our, our patrons take a oh, year to make their picks. Okay. So I'm going to pick this. I could, there's like four different answers I could give, but because you guys are, are a nineties podcast, I'm going to say the Mary Lou Lord, uh, EP. Um, it's a, it's a eight song, 12 inch because it's, it's, a if you, if you realize that she's from Boston, it gives a lot of context that I think a lot of people miss. Like she's coming out of the same scene as Tanya Donnelly and Juliana Hatfield and belly and, um, like the, all the, there, like the, there's a, it's a whole Boston thing going on in Mary Lou's record, even though it was recorded in the Pacific Northwest and she was living in the Pacific Northwest, but it's got a Boston vibe, if you ask me. Mm-hmm. But it's just very, very 90s. It's, it's an interesting record. It's just got one full band electric track and then seven, seven um, acoustic songs. And I just think it's a super 90s record. It wasn't totally forgot. Like it, it, it was kind of popular when it came out, but I don't think it's remembered quite as much as say, you know, un- I mean, say Elliot Smith or some, somebody, some of bikini kill. Sure. Uh, so I would say that that's a record people would be well served to go back and check out as a totally nineties record. That's, that's worth remembering. Excellent. We'll have to add it to our backlog. Yeah. We'll put, yeah. It, in, we'll put it in the, in the hopper for a future episode. <laughs> like I was saying, thanks for joining us. And we got to thank Portia for, for basically setting this up for us, making this happen. I want to remind people that they can go to killrockstars.com to check out all the releases, including Filthy Friends. That's a, a new one that was just uh, out last month, or yeah, was back in May. Also, check out the podcast, The Future of What. Very cool podcast. Jay and I were checking it out. Very impressed yes. by the audio quality, which is better than ours. <laughs> well, it's it's tackling the music business issues that I've been I've been searching for a podcast to cover this stuff. So I was so happy to find it. It's it's really interesting and uh, talking about uh, really the current state of things and sort of how the the business is changing, which can is I, uh, really cool. A little plug: um, the future of what is a great podcast about the music business, and that's mostly what they've done. But they kind of stepped out and did an unusual thing. Uh, they did a, po- a podcast series on um, the just the album Potty Mouth by Bratmobile. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of out of character for Future of What, but it's the your fans, fans who want to listen yeah. to talk about one record. I mean, ha- have one record really dug into. Go then they would probably be interested in finding the Future of What uh, podcasts on the Bratmobile album Potty Mouth. 
Good call. Yeah, that's exactly the kind of content that we we try to produce as well. I listen yeah. to the first episode. It gets really deep into the girl, um, right girl stuff too. So good call. Yeah. Slim, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. So, Jay, that was our roundtable interview with Slim Moon of Kill Rockstars. We have to give thanks. Uh, I mentioned to a – we actually got set up by his wife, who is a Porsche Saban, who actually runs the label now. And thank Johnny Hooper, who uh, made the suggestion over Patreon. If you want to join us at Patreon, you go to – what's that website, Jay? Where do, they, where do they go? DMOUnion.com. That's right, DMOUnion.com. Not DigMeOutUnion.com well, yet. I'm buying that right now. He's so. buying it right now, people. <laughs> By the time because, this uh, goes live, we will own another URL. <laughs> Make sure you get .net, <coughs> .org, .edu. If you start saying that, I'm going to have to buy those too. What so if we did digmeout.dmo? Can we do .dmo? Can we create what, our... country is, what country is DMO? I don't know. Can't you create your own now? Demilitarized zone? Yeah. Oh, that's D- DMZ. DMZ, yeah. So P- Patreon, that's where you go to support the podcast, where you get to vote in polls. You might even get to suggest the very roundtable topic we're going to do. And if you like what you heard, please consider leaving us some positive feedback over at iTunes. For Jay, I'm Tim. We're out, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Thanks for listening. To support the podcast, visit www.patreon.com forward slash dig me out and become a monthly subscriber at www.digmeoutpodcast.com where you can find links to our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages, as well as our merchandise store at zazzle.com. Dig me out.